If you haven't already, would you turn your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1? We'll be looking again at verses 8 through 10. If you don't have a Bible, you can use one of those blue church Bibles located underneath the seat around you, and in that Bible you can turn to page 986, that will bring you to our text. They didn't allow you to sit with them? They kicked you out, they made you sit in the front row? That's sad, okay. All right. Ah, oh, family. Oh, okay, so beginning in verse 8. For not only has the word of the Lord, that is the gospel, I mentioned that last time, synonymous for the gospel. For not only has the word of the Lord or the gospel sounded forth, or another good word, a translation of this is echoed. I like that word. For not only has the word of the Lord, the gospel sounded forth or echoed from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Today is part two on this passage. I had originally planned uh, to just one message for this section of God's Word here. However, I was not able to share all that I had prepared uh, last time. So we return now for a second time to this text today. What we still need to cover is verse 10. Verse 10. But first, we'll do a little review of what was covered last time concerning verses 8 and 9. And again, if you missed last time, which was a couple of Sundays ago, I encourage you to visit our website, as I had mentioned before, and there you can listen to everything that was said in that sermon, because I certainly won't say it all again today. So here's a little review. Verse 8 begins with the word for. For. And so it explains or further describes something that had gone before, and in this case it is Paul's statement at the end of verse 7 of chapter 1. We didn't read it, but that statement being that the new believers or new Christians in Thessalonica, which was a city, still is, uh, in Greece, became an example to all the believers in the two provinces of Greece, or as stated there in the text, Macedonia and Achaia, which represents the northern and southern regions of Greece. Verse 8 then helps us understand why... The new believers in Thessalonica became an example to all the Christians around them. We learn that it was not only the Thessalonians' bold proclamation of the word of the Lord or the gospel that strongly sounded forth from them and now echoed through the hills and valleys of Greece, but in addition, reports concerning the Thessalonians' conversion or their saving faith in the true and living God had, via word of mouth, spread everywhere or became known all over, even beyond Greece. So news of the gospel was spreading like wildfire, like wildfire, directly and indirectly, because of the actions of these Thessalonian believers. 
Paul closes out verse 8 by saying that due to the spread of these reports of the Thessalonians' life-changing faith in God, he and his traveling companions, or we, as it is stated in the text, did not need to say anything. Say anything about what? About what had occurred in Thessalonica when they preached the gospel there, Paul and his ministry partners. So why didn't they need to say anything? Why didn't anything need to be said? Well, Paul tells us in verse 9, which also begins with 4, Paul then explains or further describes why he and his companions didn't need to say anything to others about what had occurred, and it was a big event, big news, about what had occurred in Thessalonica. And it was because other people who had already heard about the events in Thessalonica were telling Paul and his companions what had happened. And then he continues on in verse 9 and 10 with a summary of the reports that they were receiving. And it is the facts of these reports that we have been focusing on primarily last time, and so we will continue this time as well. So Paul says in verse 9 that it was being reported, we're still doing a review, that his readers or the Christians in Thessalonica, these new believers, had turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And again, we looked at that in some detail, but to remind you, the word turned in verse 9 should be understood as a, a, a spiritual U-turn, if you will, a spiritual U-turn. A turning, as one commentator put it, that alters the course of one's life so that they are now moving in the opposite direction. That is a good definition. It's a turn, the turn to God, is a turn that alters the course of one's life so that they are now moving in the opposite direction. The gospel, the true gospel that Paul preached, his ministry partners preached, and these Thessalonians responded to in faith, in belief, in trust, that gospel alters the course of one's life. It did in the first century, it continues to do so today. When it is the true gospel and when it is truly believed and embraced. So beloved, just again to restate and kind of capture it all and move forward now with the text, genuine salvation, true conversion, and this has to be stated, I think, over and over again, because how many people do you know who profess to be believers, Christians, especially in this nation? So many. But genuine salvation, true conversion, involves a life-altering, life-changing Turn to God. That is what the scriptures teach. That is what we are learning right here in this passage. And it's repeated over and over and over again, this truth. This transforming turn to God necessarily involves turning away from your false religion or false and inferior worship. 
turning away from your idolatry, turning away from your rebellion as you turn toward the true and living and amazing and altogether worthy and most excellent God. It is a turning away from your old and misguided life. It is a break, this turn to God, with your sinful past. True conversion is not, is not simply the same old life with God added to it. But rather, it is an altogether different life. That's authentic Christianity. But is it a life entirely free from sin, one might ask? (laughs) I wish it were. I wish it were. No, not yet. Not yet. But rather, it is a life moving away from sin. And toward God. In fact, it is a life moving toward God, so it is necessarily moving away from sin. And if it is not that life, it is not a life that ever turned to God. It is a life growing in holiness and decreasing in its sinfulness. It is a life that has begun and continues in repentance. It is a life now concerned about the Christian life and focused on what pleases God rather than consumed with and fixed on what pleases the flesh. This saving turn turns self-centered, self-serving sinners into saints who serve God. That's what this turn does. Is it perfect service, one might ask? Oh, I wish it was. But no, not yet. Not yet. But rather stumbling and progressing in our service to God as we continue to walk down that road that leads to glory. A road that we were not on before turning to God. You with me? That's the turn. That's the true turn. Now we come to verse 10. And that was all just review. And we will focus on now two things. Waiting and wrath. Waiting and wrath. First, waiting. Okay? So the one who truly turns to the living and true God, this is where we're drawing all this from the text, not only turns from their old life of rebellion against God and begins to serve now the living and true God, but they also now wait. They wait. For what? Or who do they wait? Well, the text answers that question, so we'll look back to the text Looking back at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 9. For they themselves report 
how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he, that is God the Father, raised from the dead. Who is that? Jesus. So the one who has turned to God goes on to serve God or serve the God they have turned to while at the same time waiting for the coming of God's divine Son, Jesus, the resurrected one. This Jesus, beloved, is the one who appeared to many people alive after he got up and left the tomb where his dead and crucified body had laid for three days. Acts 1.3, 1 Corinthians 15.3-8. This Jesus is the one who is alive, glorified and seated at the right hand of God the Father, Ephesians 1.20, Colossians 3.1. And this Jesus is the one who promised that after he left this world, and we sang about it this morning, he would go and prepare a place for his people and come back to get them that they might be with him. What a beautiful promise. John 14, 1 through 3. This is who the Thessalonian believers were waiting for, and this is who all true believers are waiting for. Now, I think it's important that we understand what what it means that they waited. They waited. The Greek word translated here in this text, to wait for, it's one word in the Greek, to wait for, it means to await, expect, wait up for, wait up for. Almost like you're waiting for your spouse to get home. You're not sure when they're going to be home, but you know they're coming home soon, any moment now. And so you are expecting and waiting for their arrival. That kind of wait, you know? Not just kind of a general, I'm just waiting to find my prince. It's not that kind of wait. It's like, who knows if it'll ever happen. Maybe it'll happen. I don't know. It's not that kind of wait, okay? This is an expectant wait. So, in fact, you could call it that, and it's been referred to that. It's expectant waiting. It's anticipation, yeah? That kind of wait. One commentator says this. I, thought, I found it to be helpful. The word, that Greek word, it pictures them, them being the Thessalonian believers, and all believers since then, it pictures them as people who were eagerly and expectantly looking forward to the coming of one whose arrival was anticipated at any time. The present tense of that word, so it's a a waiting that they're always doing, they're living in this waiting. Serving and living in this waiting. The present tense gives this as their continuing attitude. Clearly, the Thessalonians viewed Christ's return not simply as the 
consummating event due to take place in the indefinite in time, but as something to be actively expected in the near future. In other words, this waiting was not, as I said, someday he'll come, I guess, someday. I mean, he said he would. No, there's an anticipation that he would come and it could happen at any time. That's the word. It is assumed, he says, rather than asserted in these early letters that Christians of that generation may hope to witness it. Now, what generation was that? Uh, first. And what generation are we in? Yeah, 21st. 21st, that's a long time. 2,000 years, right? Believers have been waiting. But every generation, if they understand these things rightly, has been anticipating and looking forward to his coming at any moment. In fact, Jesus set it up that way. So this generation should be anticipating his coming, those who are believers, just as the first generation believed that they themselves could see him come again, just as he promised that they might be with him where he is and enjoy that sweet fellowship of being with their Savior. In other words, they didn't believe anything had to occur or take place before his coming. They believe his coming could happen at any time. And so it has been true of every generation. And again, as we look at this, I think we'll understand maybe better why the Lord designed it that way. So a few considerations in light of this waiting that those who truly turn to God do. Just a few considerations as we think through this. The one is... Uh, obvious, but I want to draw attention to it anyway. It's the link. It's the link. Those who have turned to the true and living God are those who eagerly and expectantly look forward to the coming of the risen Son of God, Jesus. Okay? That's the link. Unbreakable. For the true believer, if we want to understand what true conversion is, for the true believer, there is a fixation, if you will, on Jesus Christ, and rightly so. All of history is about him. It's all about him. From the beginning, the Redeemer was promised, prophesied about, he came and he is coming again and will rule for all eternity over his kingdom. It is about him. It's always been about him. It is about him. It will always be about him. So it makes sense that those who follow him would be all about him and thinking about him and focused on him. And so it is the case. So I say all that to say this. To claim to have some type of relationship with God and yet dismiss Jesus or remain completely apathetic about him as some self-identified spiritual. People do. I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. I believe in God. 
right? But no word of Jesus. No focus on Jesus. No care or concern about him. No looking forward to him. Those kind of things would certainly be an indication then that the person has never truly turned to the true and living God. That's what that, would, that's what that indicates. Rather, the God they have a relationship with is more likely just a God of their making or imagination, but not with the one that actually exists. It concerns me when someone claims to have, as I said, some type of relationship with God, but talks very little about Jesus, or not at all. That is a concern. And so I say that to you as hopefully a good number of you are true followers of the Lord, true, saved, born-again believers who have turned to God. And so through that turning, you have turned away from your old life, there's been a break with that life, you're following the Lord, your mind's been enlightened, you've been given a new heart, the Spirit dwells inside of you, and because of all that, you are looking, you are longing to Jesus Christ, you are about him, you think about him all the time, no, but there is, you are being drawn to him like, a, like that dumb moth right here. I forgot to kill it before I came up, actually. Just came to mind. He landed, he was right there the whole time. I guess he was already dead, but he's done now. Like a moth unto the flame. Like a moth unto the flame. You're drawn. You can't help to be drawn if you're a believer in Jesus Christ or a follower of the one and living true God. This is his son, his beloved son. You're consumed with him. The spirit works it out in your life. And the word points to him. And exalts him as he's rightfully due. You know, so I say all that to you that when your friends and family or those of your coworkers who is so like regularly and so kind of flippantly, they say, oh, yeah, I, yeah, I believe in God. Don't take that to mean that they have ever turned to the true and living God. If there is no talk, no discussion, no focus, no looking to Jesus or about Jesus. Because those who have turned to God are fixed on him. They're fixed on him. He is the focus of Christianity. Now, beloved, I mean, for the believer, we know for the believer, sin is distracting to us and distracts us from this focus. I get it. For sure. So even in this, we are not perfect. We do not perfectly stay focused. We are not always looking to him. We get drawn down into all the other junk. We do, but there is a regular life of repentance where we turn away from that garbage and turn unto and back to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He draws us. Genuine believers are Jesus freaks. In, in the most positive way that you could say that. I mean, it's been used to speak negatively about Christians, but I, I've never had a problem with the idea of being a freak for Jesus. That is what salvation does to the sinner. It changes them. It transforms them. Once a rejecter, now a lover. Once a rebel, now a servant. So, 
There is a link. Don't miss the link. All these talk about God and following God and, and removing Jesus. And that clearly makes it very simple then to identify many false religions, right? How many religions claim to be the way to some type of heaven or nirvana or some whatever? I don't even know. Something, something wonderful in the end or whatever, but Jesus is left out entirely or even rejected. You can be sure they are not talking about the true God. You can be sure. Another consideration in light of this waiting is your eschatology. Eschatology is the study of last things or the knowledge of the things to come, the end of the age, and so on and so forth. Eschatology. And Summit Bible Church has a position concerning eschatology. It's stated in our our doctrinal statement. Good Christians can disagree, can, they do, but they can. This is not a matter of salvation. One's eschatology does not have to be a particular thing in order for them to be saved. They are saved through faith in Christ and his saving work and following after him. But that doesn't mean eschatology is not important. It is important. It's taught in the Scripture, so we are to strive to understand what the Scriptures teach. But again, there are differences of opinion among good and godly people. But I just want to, again, cast light on why we hold the view that we do and why we think it fits best with all that the Scriptures teach concerning last things, end-of-time things. One writer, commentator, says, Primitive Christianity, so first century Christianity this, the, the, in its form, first uh, original form, baby form, it universally held that the resurrected and ascended Christ would return and their expectancy of this event implied its nearness. You can't escape that as you read through the scriptures. It wasn't just that they believed Christ the resurrected Christ and ascended Christ would return, every Christian, if they're truly a Christian, believes that. So every, every, every person who has an eschatology, they believe Christ is going to return. But listen, as you read the scriptures, not only did they believe he was going to return, but they believed his return was near. It was eminent. Even in the first century, they believed that. In the second century, and then as you read Christians throughout time, and now we move away from the scriptures and what they had to say, they believed his return was near. They weren't looking for something else to occur. They were looking for him to return and come and get them, as he had promised. Another commentator says this, throughout the epistle, so throughout this letter, the events of Jesus' future's coming are imminent. That's how it's presented, meaning it could take place at any moment, written in the first century. In fact, we'll get there, but in chapter 4, verses 15 and 17, Paul speaks like this, we who are still alive, we, he's coming to himself, we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, He goes on there, and we'll get to that. So one author just commenting on that states, Paul believed, which is clear from the text in chapter 4, that he and his Thessalonian readers 
might well be alive when the Lord came. He believed, and this is our position here, that the rapture of the church was imminent, that it could take place at any moment. Such was the outlook of early Christendom, and such is always a proper Christian anticipation. So, this is just a question for you to consider. Does your eschatology allow for the imminent return of Christ? Does it allow for this? Or do you believe other things must occur first before he comes and takes his church as he promised? And some do believe that, but I think then it is hard to account for this waiting Some believe that he'll come after the tribulation is over then, the first time. And so the way we understand his coming is it it happens in two phases, if you will. First, for his church, a seven-year tribulation. Then, for judgment and the establishment of his kingdom. But this fact that it comes at any moment, the rapture, establishes imminency. I'm not waiting for the tribulation before I start looking for the Lord. I'm not waiting for that. It could occur at any time. Any time. So we don't have to wait for cataclysmic events to take place before the Lord comes. And I think that's important into the Christian life, this this expectant waiting. Okay? So just something to ask yourself. Does your eschatology allow for what we see again and again in the Scriptures? Paul Was Paul wrong? Was he confused? He didn't have enough information? He's the the apostle to the Gentiles. Christ taught him the gospel himself. I don't think so, beloved. I think Paul got it. Paul didn't say, you silly Thessalonians, why are you expectantly waiting? Don't you know we got a bunch of other stuff that has to take place before Jesus ever comes back? It could be years, decades. No, Paul believed even in his own lifetime that he could return at any moment because that is what Jesus proclaimed and said and taught. And that's what we believe and that's our eschatology. And so we too, but you go, he hasn't come back for 2,000 years. I know. He'll come when he's ready. He'll come according to God's timetable. But his coming could happen at any moment. At any moment. And I think that's important because here's another consideration. The Christian needs to be continually focused on the heavenly, on Christ, on his return. Because remember, his coming again for his church carries with it eternal things, eternal matters, which keeps our focus set there as we wait expectantly looking forward to eagerly his coming again i mean it doesn't again it doesn't mean like we just walk around all day you know i can't go to work i can't do anything i can't make my bed because what are you doing i'm looking that's what i'm doing i'm waiting he's going to come at any moment it's not like that so we're serving god we have things to do while we're waiting we're making him known we're living our lives we're we're you know, we're, we're walking in his righteousness, attempting to by the power of the Spirit, while we wait. It's a serving and a waiting, but we are looking and expecting. And that 
And that, I would say, encourages the serving aspect because I'm looking, I'm waiting, I'm waiting for him to come. And so while I'm waiting, I want to serve him. The time could end at any moment. I don't know. I don't know if I have 10 years. Don't know if I have 20. I don't know if my children or my grandchildren will see him. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it'll be another couple of hundred years. I don't know. You know, I know there's a lot of talk about we, we think we're in the last days. I just want you to know we've been in the last days since the first century. We have. These are the last days. And every generation, if you look and study church history, every generation has had signs that, that remind them that the Lord is near. It is that way on purpose. We have plenty of signs too. And I mentioned them to you and earthquakes and rumors of wars, but go back. There's been earthquakes and rumors of wars. They are all birth pangs. They are all signs. It's a constant reminder. It's a warning. Repent, repent, repent. And for those who have had, we look and we long and we hope and we anticipate. And all of that draws our minds and our hearts out of the mud of this world and the earth and and the temporary onto the eternal as we look and expect and wait. Think about this, think about this. And, and there's another aspect to this, this imminent return and how, it, how those who eagerly anticipate and look forward to his coming, how it impacts them. Not only does it help right their mind, because again, we live here and so we're constantly just drawn back down to the here and now, here and now. And when, you, when that happens, beloved, when that happens, what happens to your spiritual life? Does it not deaden it to some degree? Doesn't it? You just kind of like, you know, you forget. But when you look and you long and you're anticipating and it could occur at any moment, all of a sudden you realize, this stuff doesn't matter. This stuff doesn't matter. My Lord is coming, my eternal Lord, to give me my eternal home that I might be with him forever, that I might be able to embrace him. This junk doesn't matter. This pain won't last. These troubles can't go on. He's coming, he's coming. At any moment, he's coming. So, Colossians. Thomas will get there, and I'm not going to say much about the passage because I want him to do it. And I don't want to contradict him or anything. So, not that I would, I'm just saying. I don't want to make it difficult for him. So, I'll just read it. It says in uh, 2, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. And then listen to what he says. For you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, and his, it doesn't say this, but, and his appearance is imminent. When he appears, they're speaking to him as if it could occur at any moment. I mean, you don't have to worry about that first century generation. You got a long way ahead of you. When he appears, it could happen at any moment then you also will appear with him in glory. And then notice what he says right after that. Here's this. This is the sanctifying work of the eminence of Christ's return. Knowing that he can appear, he can appear at any moment. He is going to appear. He can appear at any moment. You will be like him when he appears. Then Paul says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. In these two you once walked when you were living in them. (laughs) When you were living in them, past tense. 
but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. John says in 1 John, I preached through this sometime back, this letter, in 1 John 3, 2 through 3, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. It is this this hope, this anticipation, this longing to see him again, and knowing as we see him again and he comes again for us, we will be made like him. And everyone who has that ongoing, regular looking and longing and hope is purifying themselves as he is pure. It's it's a regular work that's going on as one is longing and looking. Not forgetting, not going, yeah, he'll come back someday, I don't know. Looking and longing, not waiting in their sanctification, but active in their sanctification because they're waiting, anticipating, eagerly looking unto the return of their pure and righteous Lord. From that message, I said this, the child of God who hopes in and anticipates Jesus' coming and the reality of what that coming will mean for them, that they will be made like him when he appears, holy and righteous, that child of God consequently makes it their aim in life to be morally pure now, in the present, in this life, to keep themselves from sin, to be like Christ, to purify themselves as he is pure. Are we eagerly and expectantly looking forward to his return? As I said, for the Christian, I mean, sometimes it's a matter of eschatology. I think our eschatology, the one we've embraced, may not have that in its place. We may not do it because of what we think about the end of the world and how, how all these things will play out. There's not an eminence to his return. Other things have to occur first. So maybe that's it. But even for the one who has the right eschatology, as I said, sin comes in and clouds that out and drowns that out and makes us forget and the cares of this life and this world crowd into our minds. And so we continually have to be pushing them back out and bringing in Christ and his goodness and his glory and remembering he is coming and his coming could happen at any moment. And that thinking will move us in our sanctification, move us away from sin. It escalates that. It helps that whole process. Finally, wrath. Wrath. We, we looked at waiting. We talked about a few things in light of this waiting. How about wrath? 1 Thessalonians 1.10 It says, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. There is another way that this last phrase could be translated. I want to show you that at the end of verse 10. It can be translated this way. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, our deliverer from the coming wrath. Maybe you didn't notice the difference. It's slight. 
It's either Jesus who delivers us from the coming wrath, which he does, that is what he does, or Jesus, our deliverer from the coming wrath, which is more about his character or the character of the Savior that is being expressed here. It's his office and work to be our deliverer. I prefer both are good and both say speak the truth. Uh, I prefer the latter. That is speaking of his office, that Paul is uh, bringing that up. He is our deliverer from the coming wrath. But as our deliverer, he will deliver us from the coming wrath, okay? So a few considerations concerning this coming wrath. Notice that this wrath is not defined or explained here in, in the letter. It's not, this is, you know, new church, new Christians. Uh, Paul just says, the wrath. Why isn't it defined? Why doesn't he explain it? Well, the logical conclusion is because Paul had already explained it to his readers when he explained the gospel to them, right? That's what he did. Paul and his ministry partners went in there and preached the gospel. And in preaching the gospel then, they were informed and instructed concerning this wrath, which is, of course, God's divine wrath against sin. That is what Paul is talking about. The book that we're reading in, um, for the men's study called Know Why You Believe, they have a section about just talking about the wrath of God. And uh, I, like, I like the simple statement. God's wrath is his response to our response to him. That's God's wrath. As sinners have rebelled against him, pushed back against him, refused to subject themselves to him and acknowledge him as he is due, God's wrath is ignited against that sin, rebellion. It must be because God is holy and righteous. One writer says, this concise reference to the wrath implies that the readers would understand its significance and indicates that the preaching of divine wrath coming upon sin and idolatry was an essential part of the apostolic message, the apostles and their representatives who preached the gospel in the first century. So why do I bring that up? Well, if it was, part of, if it was a, an essential part of the apostolic message, it should be part of our preaching as well. Part of our proclamation of the gospel too. We've said this a million times, but we know the gospel means good news, but good news in light of what? In light of the wrath of God that's coming against the world and sinners who fail to repent and turn to God. And even if people don't want to hear it or are opposed to the wrath, we have to, if we're faithful, we have to proclaim it and make it known. I don't believe God would send people to hell. Okay. But he is going to. He is. He is going to send people to hell, and he'll be right and just in doing it. He has a right to be angry. He is holy. In fact, that gives us an opportunity, you know, to speak to them about this wrath, but not to back away from it. The wrath is a part of the message of the gospel. We should never separate them out. One writer says that he, Jesus, is the rescuer, deliverer, 
and Savior of those otherwise headed for divine judgment, praise be to God, and eternal punishment. In the ancient world, the idea of divine wrath was accepted, but there was no genuine hope of rescue from it. By contrast, in the postmodern world, the one you and I live in, the idea of divine wrath is rejected. So the rescuer is not needed or heeded. Right? What do you need a savior for? Now the gospel has been changed. Well, I need a savior to save my finances. Or to save my marriage. Or to save my health. You got that, Savior? Sure. The false gospel preachers come in. Sure, absolutely. Just keep putting in the plate. I'll give you that, Savior, all day long. The Savior we worship, true believers, true Christians, has saved us from the wrath to come. He is the deliverer. He will deliver. That is why it's such good news your health, your marriage even, your, your life here, this is all temporary anyway. Any saving in that area is a temporary matter. So we must, we must proclaim, in proclaiming the gospel, the wrath of God, and not shy away, and it seems to become becoming more and more like, you know, you, you Christians, that's all you talk about. You know, and even when I hear, like, that's your problem, that's why the churches are clearing out, because you talk about, hellfire and brimstone and, and wrath and stuff. And no one wants to hear about wrath. We, we've, we've evolved to a, a higher God, a, a God of love, who opens his arms wide and, and will bring everyone in, except Hitler, of course. They always leave him out. But they'll bring everyone in, which is, should tell you something. That doesn't make sense. Why not him, right? I mean, everyone? Oh, except the murderer or the pedophile. But, you know, everyone else. Anybody else he won't bring in? Okay, but, you know, everyone, he'll bring them all in. He's the God of love. He would never do anything like that. That's where we are now, folks. Push back against that. Push back. Not, not in anger, but with patience and in truth and in real love. Push back. The wrath of God is coming, my dear friend. You don't know wrath. I don't even really know wrath like this. It's coming. And there is one who can rescue you and will rescue you from that coming wrath. He is the deliverer. Do you know this one? Oh, you're going to tell me about Jesus. Yes, I am. I don't know who else to tell you about. He's the only one. He has come. Yes, God is love. He gave up his son that you might be delivered from this wrath. Push back. Don't let the culture force you into what it wants you to be. Shut up with your wrath talking. I don't think so. I'll keep proclaiming it. The wrath of God is coming. Hell is an awful place. But you can be saved, sinner. Turn to God. Repent and believe in the one who delivers you from the wrath to come. Push back, beloved. Push back. Push back.
Christianity has always been countercultural. It always has, and it will continue to be. And the more our culture moves away from God, it'll become even more countercultural. And people will say awful and terrible things about you. Look to the to return of your Lord. Keep your eyes fixed. They'll keep saying it. They'll keep doing it. They may even do awful things to you. Look, serve and wait and serve and wait and proclaim until he comes. Paul's in a prison cell we read about this morning. Who writes a letter like that when he's getting ready to die? As Thomas finished off with the last words, I I caught my breath because that was it. That was it. And yet he's so encouraging still and so focused still. Who does that? People who have been born again with the Spirit of God, that's who does this kind of crazy stuff. That's who stays the course. That's who pushes back. Push back. So, a few more things. The significance of the statement. As I, as I said before, Jesus is the one who rescues us from the wrath to come, or either one, Jesus, our deliverer from the coming wrath. Think about you know, what Paul didn't say. At the end of this thing, he doesn't say, you know, okay, so, and I hear these reports. And, and, and they say you're, you're, you're waiting, and you're, they, they know you're waiting, and they see that you're waiting for this one, the one who is resurrected again uh, by God the Father, Jesus. Jesus, you know, that one, the one who uh, makes our life better. He doesn't say that. Now, does Jesus make a Christian's life better? In so many ways. In so many ways, honestly, right? Goodness gracious. And not in the ways the prosperity gospel, uh, false teachers uh, say. Peace, hope, strength for this world. He does restore relationships. He helps, he'll help you to have a marriage that is good, uh, all, yes, all those things he does, but I mean, of the most significant thing that Paul could say, I think this was it. And Jesus, if I was going to think about one thing to say, and Jesus, remember, the one who delivers from the wrath to come. That's it. That I don't. It can't get more significant than that. It's a truth that should that the Christian should never get over, and they should allow it to just resonate in their mind always. And I'll say this, if they do, then they will always be grateful people no matter what their present circumstances. Okay? So marriage is going to the pots. But I have Jesus who delivers me from the wrath to come. Now, it doesn't mean I don't, I don't care about this marriage. I should care about it because Christ has called me to care about it and to model him in it and to live for him in my marriage. Okay, but what if it doesn't get better? Am I just doomed then to depression and misery? No, because I stand over here and go, well, I'm doing what I can, but the marriage isn't gonna last forever. It isn't, not in the sense that we're gonna divorce, but in the sense that one of us is gonna die or both of us are gonna die. This is not meant to go on eternally. So 
I can stand here, even in this messed up marriage, and still have hope and still have confidence and still have strength, which I'm going to need if I'm going to fight for my marriage, because I remember that Jesus is the one who delivers me from the wrath to come. Yeah, so woman or man, you got your wrath, I got all that, but that's going to end eventually, and I am delivered from the wrath to come that never ends for those whom have not been delivered from it. You get me? So it doesn't matter. Car accident. There's all kinds. We had car accidents here. A couple car accidents. I don't know what happened to your arm. Was it a car accident? Okay, I don't want to hear about it then. So anyway, I do, brother, I do. Because it doesn't fit with the illustration. But there's several car accidents here from our, our body, right? So I was talking to a brother who was in a car accident. He was just so, he was so positive. Like, you know, why? Because well, he loves Jesus, he loves Jesus, and, and through that event, he was told me he was drawn even closer to his Lord, right? And then as we remember, who is this one who we love and loves us and draws us closer to him? He's the one who delivers us from the wrath to come. So, all right, okay, car accident, financial problems, you name it, what is it? Difficulty in this life, my goodness, it comes, it goes, it comes, it goes, it won't stop coming, but it will end. It will end. And so you stand there in your mess, falling all apart around you, and you say, you are the one who delivers me from the wrath to come. And you could come at any moment. Come, Lord Jesus, come. What a, what a beautiful place to be. Have pity on unbelievers. Have compassion for them. They are in such a terrible place. Don't hate on them. Don't despise them. Have pity. And look look for opportunities to bring them the goodness of the gospel, the truth of the gospel. What a difficult world to live in without, I can't imagine. But with the gospel, my, oh, my. There is hope, there is strength, there is confidence, there is life in the midst of all the death. I think this also would be an encouragement to these persecuted Christians. Again, just going down that same theme. He says it at this end, Jesus, remember, the one who delivers us from the wrath to come or the deliverer from the wrath to come. Remember that these Christians were being persecuted. Their coming to faith begin in a, a, a context of persecution. Paul and them were booted out for preaching the gospel. They were left behind this young church. Paul will point out in the letter that they too suffered and are suffering for their faith. So again, I think it's like this. You know, human wrath or hostility, which happens against God's people or the church, against those who certainly make Christ known. And it's harmful and hurtful, this, this hostility and this, and this persecution. But it's nothing. It's nothing compared to the wrath of God that is coming. It's nothing. It, it puts us in the prop, it gives us a proper perspective about this stuff. It's nothing. The one you have trusted in and proclaim and are expectantly looking forward to and are being persecuted for. Remember, he is the deliverer from that wrath. You know, Jesus said, remember this, Matthew 10, 28. Jesus, the people try to say Jesus didn't talk about hell or 
Are you crazy? We are. People are crazy when they're stuck in sin. They're crazy when they're trapped in their sin. So we gotta, we're, helping, we're hoping they'll be freed from that by, by believing the gospel. You mean he didn't talk about hell? What do you think he did? He just walked around healing children and laughing and feeding people? My goodness. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. This is the Lord. Rather fear him. Wow, he even talks about fear. That's crazy. Yeah, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell, right? But for you and me, child of God, if you truly have turned to God, we don't have to fear being cast into hell any longer because we have been made one with the one who delivers from that wrath. It just keeps it in perspective. And so we have no reason to fear. Think, that's what he's saying. Keep it in fear. Don't fear those folks. What could they do to you? Kill you? That's the best they got. Hurt you? Harm you? This life ain't forever anyway. One way or another, you're, it's going to come to an end. But what you need to be really concerned about is the wrath that will never come to an end. And I am the one who will cast all those who have rebelled against me into that burning fire. Fear me and repent and bow your heart and your knee and I will save you and deliver you from that very wrath. And finally, and I'll close, I think it helps us avoid wrong thinking. Remembering Jesus as our deliverer from the wrath to come or the one who delivers from the wrath to come. Either one, either statement. Remembering that, staying Staying focused on that, it helps us avoid wrong thinking. Uh, in a book called Right Thinking in a World Gone Wrong, one writer says, to be angry at or about the events of life is to mistrust a loving God. That's true. Ultimately, that's what it boils down to. To be angry at or about the events of life is to mistrust a loving God, is to think that he's done something wrong or that he doesn't love. Then he says this, how can we be suspicious of his heart? when we remember his love for us in the gospel. And how could you not remember his love for you in the gospel when you remember the one who hung there for you on the cross, hung there to deliver you from the wrath to come? That is who he is. That's the one you worship. That's the one you say you follow. If you keep that before your eyes and in your mind and your heart, how could you question God's love for you. And it'll help keep you, write you as you go through life and are tempted to begin to question God or his goodness. Oh my, he is good. He is good. Remember, he gave you his only begotten son. Remember, he's the one. He's the one who delivers you from the wrath that you deserve, that I deserve. He's the one. Let's pray. Father God, I pray for those just simply who uh, have never turned. I have no doubt, Father, that they are here. There's people here. They're coming, and I'm, I'm glad that they're here. But I am concerned and saddened if they have not yet turned to you truly. They have not made that spiritual U-turn. They may use Christian terminology in some of their conversations, but they don't know you. 
they are still headed down the same path that they've always been on. They have not repented. They have not bowed their heart and their mind. They have not truly trusted in and turned to Jesus Christ. They have not put their faith fully and completely in Him. They are not looking and longing and waiting for Him. They are not concerned about those things. They're not really serving God. They haven't even turned from their idolatry. They worship themselves. True of all of us, really, before you saved us and brought us into the truths of the gospel and caused us to turn to you. But Father, I pray for those that are here right now who have not yet done that. Lord, Father, I pray, I, I plead, I plead. Save them. Father, I pray they would not ignore the burning in their hearts or their minds that might be there that's convicting them now, even now. Telling them that they are not truly children of God. Reminding them that they are phony and fake. Reminding them that they still face your wrath and are living under it. Father, I pray that they would not ignore it. That you would cause them to hear that and to turn to the one and only one who can save them and transform them forevermore. Jesus, the one who rose from the dead, the one who delivers us from the wrath to come. And it is in his name, his sweet name, we pray, amen.